Putting up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay. Produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers united we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pores to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud. And welcome to Creatures of the Industry, a program which is basically trying to record the oral history of our industry and each week we have a creature of the industry on the show and uh, we talk about their experience in the industry. But first, a little cheerio to Lou Larabino who very generously uh, complimented the show and I must say was one of the earliest users of the new email address for the podcast. And that, of course, is Creatures of the Industry, one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. Cheerio to Lou. Happy days, everybody. Today we have our one and only Brendan Pitt. Welcome aboard to Creatures of the Industry, Brendan. Cheers, Roth. Righto. This is a show about individual history but as it reflects on industry history. And my question for you first up is, when did you first get in the industry and how did you get to be in the industry? It, that's a good question. I guess in all honesty, I uh, was working up in the Northern Territory, uh, lo and behold, for John Holland's who little... Little did I know I'd be locking on to some 25, 30 years later. Everyone's got across the bear. <laughs> so I guess you could say that when I started in construction, although there was a bit of a gap after that job before I uh, started in uh, the metal construction. So you started in metal construction in Victoria? In Victoria. Yep. yep. And I presume Geelong. Geelong. You kept it local. <laughs> kept it local. And whereabouts did you start? I, um, fortuitously, uh, a few of us were living in a house in Geelong. Uh, one of the boys that was living with us uh, always had a hard time getting to work on a Monday. And uh, he was expected to be picked up for a shutdown out at the Shell Refinery. Uh, I didn't have a clue what a shutdown was at the time or even what Shell was about. But uh, a fella come to pick him up for work. He wasn't there. I answered the door. He said, well, we need a... Uh, a TA. 
I said, oh, okay, <laughs> would you do the job? I said, yeah. <laughs> so you were called in the classic sense. <laughs> in a classic sense. <laughs> you were called rather than volunteered. Yeah. So shut down, shell, oil industry, what was it like? Well, it was pretty interesting for me, uh, being a bit of a country boy, finding myself working in a refinery, but I was uh, more than comfortable because the, uh, the first person I met when I went to the uh, shutdown was the shop steward for the FIA at the time, Noel Washington. We all have a cross to bear. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was a, a pretty good introduction. Yeah, uh, Joined the union. I do have to say that over the coming weeks and or months, it was a a perfect introduction to what unionism was all about uh, at the time in the metal industry. And not only did I have Noel as my shop steward, but um, not long after meeting Noel, I was introduced to uh, Tommy Watson and, and uh, Danny Gardner, who uh, ended up being my organisers uh, for quite a few years after that. So this is early to mid-80s? Uh, it was 1981 when I started out there. Um, yeah, so and obviously finished out there uh, in the mid-90s. And a fair few things happened in the FIA during that period and a cheerio to Uncle Noel and to uh, Danny and Tommy who have all been uh, creatures of the industry on this program. So it just keeps going round and round in circles, doesn't it? <laughs> It was, a, I guess, for a, a young fella not fully aware of um, you know, the union and, and the, not only the benefits of being a union member but also uh, the protection and the good work that the union does. I was inspired in any number of ways to, to get on board and get involved and not long after I started there I became a, uh, a shop steward for the FIA. And that was at Shell? At Shell. At yeah. Shell. And what part of Shell were you stewarding? At the time there, um, I was uh, employed by one of the local engineering contractors. So really, there was quite a number of contractors working out at Shell at the time. Uh, I was, um, so yeah, we really had uh, free reign on, on the maintenance out there after the shutdown had been completed. So you've come in, you've signed on for a TA, that's trade assistant for anyone who's not too sure what the initials mean. That's a trade assistant working with a tradesman and uh, can you remember the first tradesman you worked with? Yeah, I do actually and end up working with him for quite some time and I, I have to say he's, uh, he's probably one of my closest and, and oldest mates uh, to this day, so yeah, most certainly. So who was that? Uh, His his name was uh, Terry McCormack, uh, a boilermaker, a a very good boilermaker, and we got on famously. So here we are at Shell. What sort of industrial issues were going on at the time, as far as you saw it? Uh, Like I said, the refinery itself was a a good training ground for a, a young unionist and particularly a young shop steward. Uh, the agreement that covered Shell Refiner at the time also covered 
the refineries in Altona. So the biggest issue you know, at the time was, I guess, getting rid of the apartheid that, in my mind, uh, existed out at the refinery at the time uh, between the in-house shell employees and and the contractors. Uh, we needed to strive for a little bit of um, uh, dignity, particularly when it comes to wages and uh you know, with uh, great leadership and direction from you know the the on-site stewards, both from the FIA and the metal workers, uh, and our organisers at the time, much to the chagrin of the in-house people, uh, we achieved dignified wages. And uh, having had a few years of personal experience along the same lines, um, was one of the things that changed over time. I can remember working up to uh, 3.30 and uh, then the in-houses would come and do the overtime. But, yeah, well, that, that's, that's correct, brother. Um, that's right. There's no dignity in that. There was a 35-hour week at the time that was, uh, I'm not sure whether it still exists, uh, but uh, we actually had a campaign to introduce rosters and if uh, it was good enough for the contractors, i.e. performing maintenance work for the first 35 hours in the week, it was good enough for them to work outside of that as well. So. Well, clearly the industrial uh, rights and conditions applied across the whole of the oil sector because I spent some time at uh, PRA and a few other refineries and establishments in the Altona area and it was a common approach. You went home at half past three and they kept working. Yeah, no, that's, that's correct. So coming out of that sort of background, what sort of skills did you acquire? You said you're a country boy. First job was a TA, which basically meant turning up and doing what the tradesman told you. So what sort of skills did you start to acquire during your time in the shutdown maintenance area? Well, certainly um, back then... The FIA was front and centre about making sure anyone representing the union was fully and properly trained. Uh, So getting the skills to uh, address issues and being a refinery, there was always a myriad of safety issues, day in, day out, week in, week out. Uh, Having the capacity and the support of the members, uh, probably safety was a, a primary focus. So apart from the skills you pick up as a as a shop steward, you certainly pick up some skills in uh, depending on who you're working with, the the fitting trades and the boiler making trades. But uh, yeah, the stream was uh, forklifts, scaffolding, uh, and getting into those areas, rigging, dogging. Right. So in terms of safety, for a minute, what effect do you reckon? the introduction of the Occupational Health and Safety Act in uh, the mid-80s had in terms of you doing your job? Because not everyone nowadays is looking back on what it means today, but at the time, it was a fairly dramatic change for everybody. How did you sort of experience that change? As I said, probably you're right, it was about the mid-80s when the Act was um, enacted. It was still part of my learning, so you know, I mean, when you understand your primary role is making sure things are done safely, 
the Act and the protections it gives to duly elected safety reps at the time, I guess, gave you more scope to look after workers, uh, in a sense, than your role as a shop steward. So the Act itself, it was pretty important at the time, particularly for a, a high-risk facility like a refinery. And in fact gave you the right to participate in the decision-making. The uh, the owner of the refinery certainly wasn't in favour of it. Oh, dear. <laughs> Royal Shell, how... Oh, crocodile tears for them. But it would have been also a case of, you know, a facility like Shell at Carayo, it's a multifaceted operation and as a consequence a whole lot of different things are all happening at the one time. New construction, maintenance, shutdowns, everything is all happening at the one time, which would put the pressure on, I would have thought, any delegate or health and safety rep at that time. It was, and and I guess um, when you have shop stewards and organisers, the calibre that we had uh, at the time, it certainly instilled a certain amount of confidence in you that you had the support of of your union as well because uh, there's a lot of people that I've worked with over the years that have have worked in refineries and, as you know, um, if you could, you'd rather work somewhere else. You were usually happy once you got outside that fence. <laughs> but in this period was also a period of quite considerable change in the FIA. First of all, it became FIME and then it amalgamated into the AWU and all the rest of it. And there was a, a fairly significant election in the early 90s. And uh, how did that affect the people at Shell? It it was a uh, an interesting exercise, um, you know. Being extremely uh, diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, at the time, uh, as I said, being a, a, a young shop steward, still finding your feet, but also learning about the politics of of the way the union operates. Uh, full credit to uh, what ended up being the Danny Gardner team. Uh, for wanting to instil a little bit of um, uh, democracy, for want of a better word, in the way certainly our branch in Victoria was being run. Going through a, an election was a very interesting process and certainly learnt a lot from it about you know, how campaigns are, um, are run. Certainly, uh, and to this day, and still talk to Tommy and Danny regularly about it yeah there was uh, certainly one side that was running a, a an honest campaign and there was another side that was running a campaign wholly supported by the bosses in effect uh so i think we all know the outcome of the uh, of the election it was a uh, i think it 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 made a lot of us uh, certainly better unionists and and it made us a lot more aware that you know, our uh, union leaders and that should be and must be accountable. So that was, if I remember correctly, 1990. And well, you were saying earlier that you were in Shell till probably the mid-90s. That's correct. How was it that you came to depart to escape the, uh, the cyclone wire and barbed wire fencing and uh, 
get into something else? How did that come about? Look, I guess it was probably a direct result of a, a long dispute we had at the refinery uh, regarding an EBA to cover the, the contractors. And uh, I have to admit, you know, from being a, a shop steward for you know, the AW at the time, the support that we got off the, off the building unions um, day in, day out in many and varied ways certainly showed me that you know, there's a whole big wide world out there. I guess my race had run. I played a, a fairly prominent role in, in that dispute and there was a couple of um, catalysts for that as well. I mean, it, it was a dispute that the contractors won. Uh, there were some casualties uh, at the end of it and I guess I was one of them. Uh, I was deemed unfit to, <laughs> to continue my employment. Your ticket had been clipped. Yeah. And so you're out of shell, which really in one way is probably, as you suggest, a good thing because it gives you other options. But after so long inside the fence, how difficult was it to do the transition? There was one difficulty and that's um, because I'd been in a role representing uh, the contractors in itself for such a long time. Uh, they were willing to do whatever needed to be done to keep me there. Mm. Uh, and I, which I, I appreciated, fully appreciated at the time. Uh, but I think um, my race was run uh, and all I could see that putting on a blue to keep me there was going to probably fracture the unity and that that we had there. Uh, so as an outcome of um, my actions, I uh, I was found a job at tra- Transfield. As we all were <laughs> at different stages. Which which I guess was uh, another part of the learning process. Um, it was a great job, met some some decent people. But I think their pathway that they had in mind for my continuation of being a Transfield employee was uh, a little bit different than what my view of um, what my future held. Well, they had a certain way of doing business, that's for sure. But just we've escaped, Shell, but just looking back at that period of time, Obviously, on a personal level, you developed as a one, an employee, two, as a unionist, and three, as a union representative. But how do you reckon the industry, that part of the industry, was at that time? What did, what had changed? What had improved? What had not improved? I guess, and we're still talking about the metal industry and inside shell. Probably one person came on the scene, and that was Craig Johnson. Uh, he hit certainly the Geelong area, and the industry for that matter, uh, like a lightning bolt, uh, even though I'd always been inspired by organisers. Uh, I first met Brendan Murphy out of the refinery, um, and a fiercer advocate for locals uh, you will not find. Uh, Craig, as I said, showed us that... Um, 
you know, you, you really need to fly the flag. So the dynamic duo, I used to call them, uh, Brendan and Craig, became a fairly formidable duo. Uh, and they did show us that uh, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, the forces of capital and uh, you know, having a, a large corporation calling the shots, uh, you could, with well-organised um, campaigns, uh, achieve great outcomes. And we continue to do that. Any, any particular outcomes you remember with a smile on your face? Uh, I mentioned dignity very early in the piece. I mean, I, I think we did. Um, when that dispute was on, we perhaps didn't receive the support of, uh, and this might be controversial, didn't receive the support of uh, our own union at the time, the AWU, that we should have. Um, we had you know, the support of... Uh, certainly the uh, the metal workers with the support of the ETU, the plumbers, and we had unconditional support from the surf MEU. Yeah. Righto. Now we're out. We're looking for work. We've gone to Transfield. That would have been on maintenance as well, I take it. It was a, it was a good job. Um, uh, as I said, um, uh, worked alongside some decent people. Um, they had just finished the the tunnel and the toll road at the time, so there was a. I, I picked up some good skills, mainly uh, around the areas of safety and learned how to use a computer. So yeah, it was a it was a good job. Uh, Peter Parkinson was a, I, I guess, human resources slash IR. Uh, with Transfield at the time, a decent bloke. He had a bit of a yak to me one morning to say, look, um, you know, they're very happy with your capabilities and the work that you're doing. Um, you know, we'd like you to pursue um, a path in you know, OH&S management. And, and, uh, with Dean Chipola. <laughs> so, look, I, I just said, oh, look, that's great. You know, I mean, I always try and make every post a winner in whatever I'm doing, but uh, I'd rather not go down that path. Uh, but, you know, thanks for the opportunity. And not long after that, I got a call from Brendan Murphy seeking whether I'd be interested in uh, becoming a, a shop steward for the uh, Surf MEU. Um, I didn't believe what I was hearing, but obviously, you know, uh, my efforts... Uh, over a long period of time in the refinery, I'd obviously you know, shown that I did have some ability and uh, he didn't have to ask me twice, put it that way. And where did you start in the building and construction industry? Uh, my first job was on the, the waterfront apartments down on the waterfront in Geelong. At that time, uh, Sean uh, Reardon was the steward. Uh, he was obviously moving into a... Uh, an organising role. Uh, so, yeah, I became the um, the site steward uh, at the Waterfront Apartments. And the builder? The builder was um, Wickham at the time. Keeping it totally local. <laughs> so totally local. Yes, indeed. Now... They obviously didn't finish the job. Uh, Abbey Group ended up finishing the job. Well... We might come back to Abbey Group, but that's another story too. But Wickham's were a local builder. They 
didn't finish the job. In fact, uh, they had a great deal of trouble staying in business and in the end they disappeared after a very long time in business. They did. And look, um, it has to be said that, yeah, obviously they made some poor business decisions, but as an employer, uh, they were pretty decent to work for. And uh, I've got to admit a lot of um, ex-shop shields and ex-organisers at one time or another uh, were in the employ of uh, Wickham Constructions. And in fact, when Wickham's uh, disappeared off the scene, uh, their real estate was up for sale and uh, the union bought their office. Anyway, there is no connection other than simple commercial transaction, folks. So we're at Wickham's. The job comes to basically an unexpected conclusion uh, for Wickham's and then we get to Abbey Group. How'd you find Abbey Group? Well, and once again... You, and uh, who did you deal with at Abbey Group? <laughs> Everyone's already and willing to give you an opinion on uh, uh, you know, this builder and that builder and this person and that person. Uh, uh, once again, um, Abbey Group... Uh, I'm just trying to think of the uh, who the boss was at the time. Oh, Furio. That's right. Um, I have to admit, coming from the metal industry and the way the constraints, I guess, we had to to perform our role within the confines of a refinery, it was a whole new experience becoming a, a shop shield for the surf MEU, um, knowing that you basically were part of a one a, a, a quite a formidable organisation and two, you had a completely different way of getting the job done, which uh, I learnt fairly quickly. And uh, a fairly demanding membership in terms of their expectations of what you had to achieve as a as a, as their representative. I um yeah I. I think that's why it should be. I mean, you're not just put there to you know, sit on your, your backside and uh, you know, look at the form guide all day. Uh, uh, and I, I like nothing better than the capacity of having a shop steward's rights and responsibilities enshrined in the agreement at the time uh, and being able to get out there amongst it, talk to the members uh, without fear of... of uh, yeah, somebody believing you're you're outside your jurisdiction. Uh, so the CFMU over a long period of time prior to me coming on board had obviously educated builders about what the CFMU stands for and, and certainly the acknowledgement and respect of um, our delegates. Now, in terms of a company, I would have thought that Abbey Group originally was Solzer who had a long-term uh, life in the industry before they became part of Abbey Group, there would have been a mix of old and new. There would have been that more hands-on, traditional-type builder approach from the Solzer days, a bit similar to the way uh, Wickham's operated, but also there would have been a fair bit of corporate involved in the new management. And that would have been, I would have thought, even in Geelong... A bit difficult to deal with. Yeah, but I guess being relatively new to uh, dealing directly with builders, um, I was still, I guess, finding my way there, how the, what the structure is and who actually calls the shots. 
So yeah, that was that was that was interesting. But one thing, if you needed uh, to discuss uh, an issue on site or you know, making sure a uh, a subcontractor was compliant, they certainly had to listen. And did uh, Tommy Moore come down? Yes. The late and great Tommy, um, a bloke who had a few different uh, roles over the year, years, but as we learnt from recently the interviews with his brother Nick. But Tommy was also a very good uh, and simple communicator when it came to issues of safety and also issues of organising a job. And I would have thought that that would have made life a bit easier coming into the industry, but also he had to work under the pressure of a national corporation, a bit different from local builders. And I guess that's, um, that was one of the, the aspects of moving from the metal industry into the building industry, um, that they had to respect your position, so they, their approach to uh, an issue... Uh, was completely different than I'd been used to, where it was, you know, uh, we're not going to listen to you, um, whether you approached it in a respectful way or not. So uh, I found that refreshing. Uh, and I guess uh, probably to use one of your old adages, you can you can catch as many flies with jam as you can with shit. So. Well, depending on what's on the menu at any one time, but... Um... So we're with Abbey Group and the job, like all jobs, finally finished. What happened then? It, it did. Um, and I guess uh, I had a, an interesting discussion with Brendan because there was an approach to, um, uh, to work in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I didn't want to leave him in the lurch. And he said, oh, yeah, he said, uh, come on, you used to always say, you keep training them up and uh, we'll, we'll take them up to the big smoke. But he did say, look, you know, you, you'll have the uh, opportunity to work on bigger jobs, um, you know, and things are on a bigger scale. So uh, you'd be silly not to do it. So... Uh, once again, uh, I uh, found myself in the employment of Abbey Group on uh, the Watergate apartments in the Docklands. And uh, Watergate by name and Watergate by nature. But anyway, it was a significant job and it was in that period where the Docklands redevelopment, a priority of the Kennett government, uh, was in full flight, but um, to be... Let's just say reflective. The development of the Docklands was obviously an issue for the development of Melbourne and all the rest of it, the utilisation of previously industrial land. But it was also maybe in retrospect not the best master plan of all time. But different jobs went very well. How do you reckon Watergate went? It was um, it was once again. I mean, in in the building and construction industry, we're we're learning every day. Every day is a new day. So I was actually um, uh, one feature of our industry back then is that um, the FEDFA at the time was still a standalone union. 
state union and um, they had a structure on site and so did the surf MEU. So I actually went to Melbourne and became the FEDFA delegate on the on the Watergate. Um, Who said there wasn't career opportunities, eh? <laughs> yeah, look, looking back on it, it was a fairly rapid rise, but I don't know. Um, yeah, somebody obviously thought I was <laughs> worthwhile providing an opportunity for, so and I'll be forever appreciative of that. So Watergate... FEDFA, what was your role there? Uh, well, I guess um, uh, once again you, you're running into uh, one uh, new organisers, um, certainly new shop stewards, and uh, it was I still believe to this day um, one of the fellows, uh, Johnny Canning, was the surf MU delegate on that on that side. Bob Ramsey was the um, FEDFA delegates. I was a bit of a co-delegate safety rep. Uh, but uh, I always welcomed the opportunity to, one, talk to John. Uh, yeah, um, a, a great, in my eyes, certainly a great fella, uh, a very good trade unionist and uh, uh, just a good fella to learn about the industry. As I said, uh, my introduction to the building industry was was fairly rapid and so he was ideal for me and I certainly look forward to every opportunity of just catching up and having a good yak. And he certainly did have a huge experience behind him all the way from Scotland and oil rigs in the North Sea through to high rise in Melbourne and probably not an uncommon path in the case of many people over the years but righto, Watergate... What years were they? That would have been 2003, 2003, 2004, thereabouts. Um, that job it was interesting because uh, you know, the previous waterfront apartments was a basically a single-storey high-rise, uh, medium-rise. Uh, the Watergate was two towers, so, you know, it was interesting you know, finding out yeah, uh, new ways of, of building. That came to an end and uh, I once again found myself as the, this time, the FEDFA shop short out at a ION in Laverton and uh, Adam Hall was a surf MU delegate. Yep. And a, uh, a job which had a fairly colourful history. But, yeah, it did. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Holden thought there was big things happening in the uh, in uh, making motors for V six cars yeah. uh, at the time. So, yeah, it was a job that didn't really go anywhere. Put the you know the actual building up, uh, had all the components for making these engines uh, sitting on the docks, and then the the job stops. So, yeah, fortuitously for me, I had an approach to when the job stopped, to go on delegation with the FEDFA as a uh, field officer slash organiser, which, um, you know, the, the, the approach, thought, well, okay, if you think I've got the goods for it, I, I'm happy to have a crack at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't say the rest is history, but uh, 2005 I, I was uh, brought on board as an organiser with the FEDFA, and that was prior to the amalgamation. Well, to be 
100% correct. The amalgamation had already taken place, but the incorporation of the FEDFA into the CFMEU uh, only took place after the departure of a particular branch secretary. Uh, good riddance. Uh, and we got on with a new secretary, and that was Tommy Watson, who you already had a long uh, personal experience with. It was, um, I mean, obviously the approach came from Noel, but when I, um, you know, certainly understood that I'd be working directly with Tommy, uh, Danny obviously had gone on to CBUS, he'd been there for quite a few years at that time. Uh, I certainly relished the opportunity and in my mind it was a good way of repaying the faith that Noel and Tommy uh, put in me uh, back in the early days at, at the refinery. So uh, I, I absolutely jumped at the chance. Right. So <clears throat> you're in Barry Street, which was the FEDFA office, uh, before the absolute complete uh, incorporation uh, after 2007. Um, so you're in Barry Street. You would have been given a receipt book. You would have been given a list of jobs, car keys, good luck. Or did you get a little bit more than that? <laughs> it, it's, um, I mean, we all laugh about it, but I guess there's no simple way of getting an organiser started. One interesting aspect is that at the time, um, and I think we still do, is the CFMEU uh, uh, represented the old boiler attendants. Um, uh, that was a part of the job that um, appealed to me. Um, so... Uh, Malcolm McDonald was my mentor to to uh, you know, do the, the uh, quarterly qu- visits. The quarterly visits uh, with the old boiler attendants, uh, as well as working uh, directly with uh, CFMU organisers. And I guess then, as uh, even though I'd uh, interacted with you numerous times, but uh, there was a, a uh, an effort to get back into the civil. <laughs> Construction. Well, let's just say it wasn't a case of any port in the storm, but let's just say we made some wise choices because Murray Hill was uh, heading towards retirement and Murray and very few others uh, across both divisions were carrying the weight of that whole civil sector and we were going through a lot of uh, infrastructure jobs under the Brax government and then the uh, Brumby government. But remind me about your civil jobs and where and where you uh, got your training wheels. <laughs> You're right, and uh, I, I mean, I guess it was your vision to say, "Well, look, uh, you must have had a crystal ball, knowing that the, the biggest concentration of." Workers slash members, possible members, uh, is going to be on a lot of these big civil infrastructure projects. So uh, my grounding was on the Crazy Burn Bypass. The one and only. (laughs) The one and only. And can I say that that was a job where Abbey Group were involved and uh, didn't exactly get off to a great start, but I've got to say that the general manager... A uh, bloke called Rod Watson, big bloke, a bit grumpy at times, particularly when I was annoying him. 
um, how do I do in business and I respect it. What do you want? What do you reckon you're entitled to? Argue, shake hands, kept the deal, no paper. We agreed on the side allowance. We agreed on delegates. We agreed on whatever we had to be agreed on to get the job started. And i got to say, if more people in the industry did it that way, it would be a bloody better industry. But that's the end of the political announcement. You've copped uh, Craigie Burn Bypass. Big job. Look, it was, and uh, I guess it's all well and good to say that the CFMU has always had you know, very good organisers, and I believe that's still the case. But for mine, our, our, one of our biggest strengths and the reason we've been as uh, formidable as we have been is our delegate structures. And you could not ask for two better delegates on that job than uh, Roundy and... Leroy. Leroy McKenzie, the one and only. Sorry, Leroy. A blank. Don't worry. He'd be happy to slip under the radar. But, yes, we had good delegates on those jobs and uh, there were plenty of issues on those jobs. And you particularly remember an issue on that job that would have been uh, memorable? Look, I think we, um, at the time, there was a real big issue with... um, plant operators injuring themselves by either accessing their machines to service them or, you know, during the process of refuel or whatever, um, falling off the machine. So probably one of the earliest campaigns that we're involved in with the civil was was certainly uh, the safety of operators, i.e. making sure there was, uh, at best, a rudimentary fall protection uh, around you know, the, the servicing area. So uh, from that, yeah, the, from memory, that's probably a, a key issue from that actual project. Well, there's a few memories that stick in my mind, but um, I'm not telling the story. But I would have thought that that was a job which probably was the culmination of a lot of experience from other jobs before we got down to the big one, which was Eastlink. And that was a, uh, a very different beast. And then followed by Peninsula Link, which was an even bigger beast. <laughs> but how did you find the road jobs? Did you do rail jobs? What's some of the different yeah. sectors that you covered? I mean, I've been lucky in my time with the CFMU because I've experienced a lot of the different sectors and that that we, that we look after. You know, the rail jobs, uh, I think uh, John Hollands. I'd, I'd probably been lucky as a younger fellow working on a, a big road job up in the Northern Territory. So uh, even back then you knew and understood that sometimes all these men want to do there wasn't any women working in industry, civil industry back then. They just want to burn diesel and they don't care what anyone else wants them to do. So I think, um, yeah, by stealth, because uh, we had, yeah, the uh, the ABCC was more than prominent at that time. Uh, we had other laws that were set out purely to undermine our capacity for effectively representing people. Uh, it didn't stop us, mind you. 
so yeah, the uh, the full gamut of civil construction, uh, having the the white Toyota Utes uh, with the flashing lights on them was a was you know it was it evolved as a bit of a masterstroke because uh, we could get onto a lot of those projects under subterfuge. Because a lot of the time they thought you were a boss coming. <laughs> I did. Trade secret. Uh, anyway, moving on to your time. As an organiser, you didn't just stay in the civil area. You actually copped a fair range of things. You were only sort of part-time civil organiser. But there was other things you copped, and uh, how do you reckon you went with them? Look, as I said, I've been provided with some wonderful opportunities. Um, It was probably uh, around the time of uh, Murray... Uh, retiring and um, I mean he in a way single-handedly lifted the standards in mobile crane hire uh, doggedly Uh, so I was approached to look after the mobile crane hire before and after Murray retired so that again you know I guess you you need to weigh up the situations and not go in like a uh, like a mad thing, but uh, it's uh, Murray was extremely well respected, you know. Uh, probably not so much by the bosses, but certainly by the associations that um, looked after uh, Mobile Cranes for his efforts in improving the integrity and safety of cranes, uh, and certainly other areas. Uh, you know, the exclusion zones. Um, so, yeah, so I ended up uh, being the mobile crane hire organiser. And some of the innovations that were introduced into that sector, do you recall the ones that you were involved in? Because Murray, Murray uh, was very good at, uh, let's say, scattergunning. You didn't necessarily know what was the top issue because he had about half a dozen issues all going at once and suddenly he would zero in on one of them and often when the, the employers least expected it. <laughs> one uh, piece of uh, Murray's armoury I, I, I did use uh, more often than not because, uh, you know, I guess Crane and I, there's, um, you know, there's, there's good and bad. So just the mere mention, well, look, I'll ask Murray about that because you knew when somebody was feeding you a line. Oh. <laughs> so, um, uh, look, I think um, rightly or wrongly, Murray's agreements that he'd, uh, that he'd put in place years before, sooner or later the, the crane hires were going to have to try and bring it to a head, I guess, because uh, a lot of the allowances and all in the crane hire agreement just kept compounding year after year, agreement to agreement, and uh, a first-rate agreement. And I'm sure there wouldn't be too many disgruntled uh, members of the mobile crane hire industry out there that um, would you know, begrudge all their entitlements, uh, and most of it was due to Murray's hard work. Yeah, there's also a lot of uh, safety issues, Murray was involved in the Christmas trees and the, as you did say, the exclusion zones around power lines. There was a lot of stuff that Murray was involved in. 
Also, uh, following the death of Rob Sergi, the basically what had to be done in relation to the erection of bridge beams, a huge part of the road sector, and uh, Morrie was absolutely instrumental in all those different areas. How did you find those as a challenge? Because something can be written in legislation, something can be in an industry standard, there can be all sorts of rules and regulations, but um, it's just burn diesel, as you said before. It's the attitude of people, not only employers, but also some blokes who are doing the work, they just want to get it over and done with them. There's a whole lot of implications. That was remiss of me. Um, you know, the, the Green Sticker campaign, you know, that um, I'm not sure whether WorkSafe have endorsed it yet, but they, they have. Yes, they've finally got their heads around it. <laughs> but the bridge beams, I mean, initially when Murray got hold of that, and I'm, I'm sure it still happens to a certain extent, but the pre-lift meetings, it didn't matter whether they were lifting bridge beams up at uh, Robin Vale or whether they were lifting them in the city. But the organiser had to be invited to those meetings uh, just to make sure, to the best of our ability, all the boxes were ticked. Yeah, And I think having you know, the union a signature to the, to the bridge beam standard is, you know, it should be saying for what it is, a pretty important step and acknowledgement that... Uh, uh, we've certainly got a role to play in the safe erection of because uh, the beams are getting bigger, they're not getting smaller. And uh, nowadays, it's not just a matter of cronies; it's also cantilevering sections, box sections, and so on. And at the moment, personal observation: there's an awful lot of bridge beam work going on down in uh, Footscray Road, and. All the flyovers and that to a Rundry Way and so on. So the issue is big. I just hope it hasn't got to the stage of a uh, flick and tick, because there is a procedure, and it does mean you've got to actually talk about what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Moving on, <laughs> you're an organizer with the CFMEU. You're covering a range of things: civil, uh, crane hire, boiler. Att- you. You caught one with a lot, didn't you? I did, um, which I was, you know, I was appreciative of because uh, I think working in the different sectors makes you a, a, perhaps a more rounded organiser and, you, and you're aware of the, um, you know, the idiosyncrasies uh, and the expectations of the members that are working in those sectors as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, when my stint as a mobile crane oil organiser... I had a, you know, obviously uh, there'd been discussions throughout our organisation for a long time about a national organiser's role. So, you know, it was discussed at an organisers meeting one morning and uh, uh, didn't really think a lot about it. Uh, but I think I had the opportunity to sit down with you and just thought, well, what is it? What sort of role is it? Um, you know, and... You gave me your view. and um, Never slow on giving people my view. That's right. <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, I think we all like challenging ourselves and um, we all want to contribute. And if I thought I could contribute something to that role, I'd be happy to throw me out in the ring. Uh, I did and, 
end up becoming the national organiser for four years, working uh, directly alongside Dave and Frank. Yep. And how was that experience? Look, it was a... Um, I bet it changed when you crossed the border. <laughs> Honestly, uh, I mean, I was... Don't hold this against me. I was born in New South Wales, so... Uh, yeah, but a bit closer to Victoria than anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Riverina, folks. So, look, it was a... In some ways, even though there was a job description, it was very much um, probably not an experiment, but it was a, a role that was going to evolve over time. Just finding out where branches you know, may have needed a, uh, a bit more of a resource, um, trying to make sure if there was a campaign involving a builder in one state, uh, how we were going to address it in the other states to support that blue. So it was a interesting role. It, I mean, all the branches uh, were completely different. Um, there was, um, in some ways, a lot more checks and balances for organisers in other states. And I think one of the strengths of the Victorian branch has always been the trust and autonomy given to organisers, provided it's not being abused. I think. That's been a, a strong point of the branch for a, a long time. Um, so it was a means of providing assistance where required. There was a, yeah, a bit of mentoring, I guess, for younger organisers outside of Victoria, uh, which I, I really enjoyed and hopefully I was able to yeah, just uh, impart some skills on uh, on some of the younger organisers. Um, I enjoyed working with the other branches. Um, there was a initially and and probably not unexpectedly there was a little bit of reserve. You know, what's my role? Is he? You know, what's he here to do? Kind of thing. So, I mean, I think with the right approach, you can you can instil a little bit of confidence in the people you're working with. So you're so, diplomatic. <laughs> well, yeah, diplomacy. That's probably the right word, but yeah. uh, I certainly enjoyed the role. Yeah. So coming out of Victoria into a national role, with all the branches, to be absolutely fair, dealing with the problems that they had in front of them, dealing with the histories, which are all somewhat different, and... Uh, dealing with different types of branch organisation. In that four-year period, do you reckon you saw things advancing or was it just too hard to, in a period that short, to change the direction of the, the whole building and construction division? In hindsight, I think there's certainly an element of that. The industrial and political environment in some states, is is a lot worse than it than it it's ever been in Victoria, and it was bad in Victoria, as you know. Yeah, the I guess uh, yeah, there was a bit of a review done around about that four year period about um, not only about the national organisers' role, but about the uh, the running of the national office. So um, I guess. Nobody could foresee with the future. I think a review is good in everything we do. You know what's working, what isn't. The fact that you know, there's no national organisers role now would suggest that you know we give it a shot and uh, maybe it it uh, wasn't what the branches needed. Now, 
on a personal level, four years into a role which meant flying all over the bloody country, dealing with all sorts of people, some of whom you would know well and others you would be meeting for the first time, and the family's back in Geelong, it would have been, I would have reckoned, a heavy burden to bear. Okay, the kids are growing up and so on, but you are still constantly on the move. And from observation, that's probably one of the hardest parts of any of those national gigs. It's just been away from home for such extended periods without any predictability about when you're going to be going away again. That is, um, that's right. And I, and I guess when I discuss it with you, I mean, everyone I spoke to about the role said there's a lot of travelling. So I was fully aware of that. And okay, if that's part of the gig, I needed to make sure that wasn't going to cause any problems at home, uh, being away so often. And uh, thankfully, you know, my wife, Melinda, supported it. Both the kids were well into high school at the time. So, I mean, it, in some ways it must have been hard for the branches to accept, although some of them willy really accepted an extra organiser, which is effectively what I was. And, you know, I still believe, I'm, I'm satisfied that we added some value to to the branches for the time that we're uh, uh, assisting them. It was a good experience, which uh, is another opportunity, albeit a completely different one, that uh, was offered to me, and uh, I'm glad I did it. It gave me more of an insight into the organisation as a whole, you know, and I, uh, I'm not sure I still fully understand the, the mechanics of our organisation, and perhaps never will, but I appreciated the opportunities to even attend some conferences, you know, meet people and, you know, I think you mentioned the word diplomacy before. I think if you've, if you've got a – I think all of us have got the right intention but sometimes the approach might be a bit off the mark. If you've got the right approach, uh, you know, people will know you're not a fucking salesman, I guess. Well, that's all true but that only adds to the burden on the person who's performing the role. Did you feel ground down by the experience? However much you appreciate it, however much you learn and so on, did you feel ground down by the experience? Four years is an extended period to be doing it. Four years for a lot of blokes is more organised than they ever want to do. I, I did because I think, you know, we're all brought up with adage from our fathers that, you know, some things uh, people speak you're in confidence about and... I had to be really careful that uh, if an organiser or even a, an executive member of a branch was talking to me in confidence, um, I had to uh, respect that, even if I knew somebody else needed to be made aware of it. Perhaps if I had me time again, I probably would have probably worked differently on, on those levels. But it became a burden, particularly at night time, uh, because all the you know, the, the organisers or delegates or members that you, you're working with through the day at different branches, I uh, think it's the right thing to do to go out and have a few beers. So, you know, and that's all well and good. I think that's that's great, but it kind of became the norm. Uh, and, you know, I had to be mindful of that. 
Righto, you got to the end of the four years. Another approach. What happened next? Well, it came completely unexpectedly, even though at the time we weren't sure what the future of my role in the national office was. Uh, There was an approach to come back to Victoria. Like I said, it was completely out of the blue. I um, said, well, that's fine, but I wouldn't be coming back if it meant somebody else was getting the arse or, you know, losing their job. No, no, no. So I said, I'll just have a think about it. So I did have a think about it and said, well, okay, Uh, what does it all mean? So, yeah, there was a moving around of organisers at the Victorian branch and um, and the role was to come back and organise Geelong, which I thought, well, I was a little bit uncomfortable about because there was already an organiser working Geelong, the Geelong area. Uh, And I said, is he aware of... The intentions, and I was told he was, but I, I learned later on that he wasn't aware of it. But we all know some things uh, are handled well, and some things aren't handled well. So when I accepted the job, uh, I one uh, needed to make sure that the incumbent was okay with the with the move, and to his credit, he wasn't happy that it would mean. A bit extra travel daily for him coming to Melbourne and, and the surrounding suburbs, but he agreed that it probably wasn't working out in his best interest either. So so here we are. We start out in the Riverina. We go to Geelong. We go all around Australia. We end up back in Geelong. Ever feel like a boomerang? It's, <laughs> it's got a... It's got an interesting synchronicity to it. Yes. Um, I think it. I'm glad it, it ended that way, uh, and that's probably looking at it selfishly. And I've said it to Brendan numerous times. I was forever thankful, uh, even though I had a great job at Transfield, that he had the presence of the mind and the, and the confidence that I'd be a good fit for the Surf MU. So I was forever thankful that he rang me and. Um, I've been uh, you know, satisfied that in all my different roles that I've you know, endeavoured to act in the best interests of both the, the members and, uh, and the organisation. So, Right. Now, you've done all the nice stuff. You've said diplomatically what should be said, but on a personal level, and you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, my observation over a long period of time with a whole lot of different people who have been officials of the union, union delegates, even just committee of management members. There is, in my mind, and I wouldn't suggest that it's any way of the same level of uh, disorder that you would get from doing military service being in the police force, the ambulance brigade and all the rest of it. But there is, to my mind, a certain level of basically post-traumatic stress disorder. You are just, every day you get up and you know you're going out to have a fight. Does that actually reflect your experience? And if it does... Do you think 
we as an organisation, as a trade union movement, have handled it well enough. Because I would have thought there are some people who have gone on being organisers, delegates, and way beyond their capacity to actually deal with it. They are just, they're, they're stuffed. And the problem that comes for the family, the problem that comes for the individual, particularly a bit later in life, there's a whole lot of stuff there which is a burden that has to be borne by the person who makes the commitment. And I'm not going to overstate it, certainly not going to say we're on the same level as ambos and soldiers and all the rest of it. People doing search and rescue. That is life and death as a job. We get involved in life and death on a daily basis. We get involved, as has only been proven lately, dealing with all the rotten exploitation of people, particularly people who are brought in here on visas, who have been ripped off and treated like shit. All this stuff in the last 20 years, I reckon, has added up uh, on people. And doing the job and coming out the other end is, in fact, an achievement. Am I on target or am I overstating it? No, look, you're absolutely spot on. Uh, And I think we're our own worst enemies um, when it comes to acknowledging that maybe uh, you're struggling Nobody wants to admit that they're you know, probably not doing the job the way they'd like to be doing it. Uh, it 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 is a stressful job. Uh, the different stresses uh, from all the other industries that you mentioned before. Uh, but I know I've spoken to you numerous times. I mean, uh, those mornings you get in your car and you know you're going to be wearing it from you know, from seven a.m. to whatever time in the afternoon. Uh, but you know, you, you you jump in the car, you go to the job, uh, you know, knowing that it's um, uh, they're ever going to try and stop you from getting in, or they're going to treat you like a uh, uh, a dirty rag, a dirty rag. Um, so I think maybe you know, I guess I was in my eighteenth year as an organizer, so there has been. More effort in recent times, I think, to try and address those issues surrounding an organising role. I think we've all seen colleagues when you know they're they're really struggling. You know whether you know uh, it's at home or on the job, and you know you can try and talk to them, but it's uh, nobody likes to put the white flag up. So it's beating me or. I can't do this anymore. It's a tough job. I mean, we've both seen tough organisers in tears uh, when they admit that it's it's done them, it's beaten them, you know. So I think there can never be enough um, focus put on welfare. I think um, the branch, as I said in recent times, um, has looked at the problem seriously and I think of... Uh, endeavoured to provide whatever help, assistance and perhaps services that they can to, to help an organiser through. So, but you know, uh, the fact that you're, you're trying to represent workers to the best of your ability, you want to make every post a winner, 
but you're low awake at night thinking about what you're going to do. Uh, so you know, you're not sleeping. You're getting in the car and you're getting angry because you know you you got to have that little bit of um, uh, added anger to your your entry to the site. But uh, a lot of people, anyone who has an organised, would not understand the role and the stresses that go with the role, and that's you know, all all the way through. Uh, everyone undergoes it. Um, now, is there any? Because you're a recently retired organiser. And I talked to, on this podcast, to people who were organisers in the distant past. People who have been organisers 30 to 40 years ago. And then there's organisers 20 plus years ago. You've been an organiser in a period of time since 2005, probably a fair bit before that, but particularly since 2005 up to the election of the Albanese government where no union has put up with the attacks, the constant grinding legal actions and harassment as the uh, construction unions have put up with. And it's cost a lot of money and a lot a lot of, I, I would suggest, people's inner energy. Do you think there is a way of dealing with these things, an approach, a, an issue of how you conduct yourself, how you think about the job, which is going to help you get through? Because beating your chest and patting yourself on the back don't work. You cannot please all the people all the time. So recent organisers probably have suffered a lot more than some of the, those in the past, but is there things that you think any organiser would be wise to give consideration to? This might sound a bit funny, but um, uh, I've recently told a, a new organiser that, um, uh, to listen to his wife. Uh, because sometimes we don't know that we're pissed off when we get home. We don't. We don't know that. Uh, so, you know, listen to your wife. Uh, they're the best judge you, you, know, you can have. Might be overly critical in other ways, but um, I think you, you need to do that. It. it I, I don't think organising's ever been easy. I mean, we've had different eras. Uh, I remember when I first started organising, when you could walk onto a job at any given time of the day, call a meeting, and there wouldn't be any uh, repercussions. Uh, obviously, you're right. It's because of um, the CFMU's effective way of organising jobs. Uh, sooner or later, there were going to be uh, hostile, conservative attacks on us. And uh, if there's one thing about this organisation, it's the fact that uh, it's extremely resilient. Uh, attacks on the organisation, attacks on individuals. Uh, some people you know, would be curled up in a corner and you know, under those attacks. So full credit to those that are still standing and still uh, still doing the job. Um, and no criticism of those who have stepped out of the fray or had to fall by the wayside because that's 
that's just the big grinder that's been going on for a long time. But on a more positive note, Alison, looking back on your career in the trade union movement and in the industry and the metal uh, maintenance industry before that, are there things that come to your mind when you're sitting quietly having a cup of tea, as you like to do, and you have a little smile on your dial and you go, that was all right. And you just give yourself a nod and a bit of a laugh and your missus thinks he's off his head again. But anyway, is there things that you remember, people you remember, uh, disputes or achievements or incidents you remember? Oh, I think you always remember the little victories you have along the way. Probably one great memory that, that I have and uh, I uh, uh, little did I know that it, uh, it would come to fruition, but when we had that dispute at Shell, it was a uh, it was a real cold, wet day, and um, yeah, there wasn't too many on the picket. Well, but in summertime, was it? <laughs> there wasn't too many on the picket, and um, it was a Sunday. I remember that, and um, this car pulled up. I seen it pull up, and he, a fella got out of the car, and he spoke to a couple of boys, and they pointed over towards me. And uh, as soon as he started walking over, uh, even though I'd heard a lot about him, but I'd never met him, and it was Camo. Mm. And he just decided to come down to find out what the blue was about. Um, and he said, oh, it's a bit of a heavyweight, <laughs> Royal Dutch shell, you know. So, look, he just come down to, you know, to say good day virtually, and um, we probably didn't speak too much about to pick it, but we spoke a lot about family and footy. And uh, before he left, he, he gave me a badge, and it was um, the one big union badge. Mm. And um, he said, oh, well, uh, keep on punching. Uh, little did I know that a few years later I'd be working alongside him. So that's a great memory that I that I certainly, you know, um, uh, and probably a regret that um, I didn't work with him uh, perhaps as long as you did uh, when he got crook. Yeah. Well, he did have one little, uh, let's say, homily, for want of a better term. Uh, he'd go into his office and he'd uh, sort of give you a glance as he shuffled paper on that incredibly messy desk of his and you'd start you know, about this, that and the other and he wouldn't even look up. He'd just point vaguely out the window and go, the wailing wall is that way. <laughs> now, let's just say he had a sense of humour to a certain extent, but when one day I pointed out to him that the wailing wall was actually more north-northwest than where he was pointing, he did tell me to fuck off. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, there some, there's been some great people in the union who have given their all and there have been any number of important things that have happened. But I reckon a lot of people have been fed, clothed and housed by this industry over a very long time. Bosses, subbies, workers, self-employed, all sorts of people have been basically fed, clothed and housed by this industry. And the one thing... I reckon maybe we don't quite, we have not that we've had much choice, but one thing we haven't quite had 
in more recent times is a laugh. The sense of humour that used to be just normal. The shit you copped when you walked into a shed at half past six in the morning, all you want's a coffee and someone starts. And off you go into this world which is unique. The best classroom in the world, the old shed. It is, and that's probably one way of putting it. Uh, I guess um, when you look at humorous sides to it, I remember um, Melinda and Longy uh, probably over about three too many bottles of wine, and he said to her, how do you put up with him, you know, coming home cranky and you know, all this kind of stuff? And she said, well, look, she says, I can put up with it because you know, the union and the industry has been extremely good to us. You know, we've, we've been able to buy a house. Uh, we've put our kids through good schools. So you know, if he does get a bit pissed off as an outcome of work, I, I can certainly put up with it. So she'd never ever said that to me, but, <laughs> but it was a nice thing to say. Well, as we're sort of uh, exchanging personal anecdotes, my beloved and revered did say to me after I'd been home for some considerable period of time after retirement, how come you're still bloody grumpy? Good question. Got no answer. <laughs> Righto. Brendan Pitt, our creature of the industry this week, thank you very much. I hope uh, that... This has been a good experience for you too to talk about your time and I hope it's a real good experience for younger people out there in the industry who thinking about, I want to do a bit more. Well, you've just heard from a bloke who's been all the way through and come out the other end. It's worth doing, isn't it? It is, mate, and uh, I guess... It's not just the industry, but this show is called Creatures of the Industry and uh, by God, I've been lucky to to come in contact with some absolutely ripping people over over the journey. They all know who they are, including the uh, the bloke sitting across from the desk, so uh, I want to thank them as well. Thank you very much, Brendan Pitt. And we'll go out by just reminding you, if you are enjoying these uh, broadcasts, feel free. Send us an email on creatures of the industry, one word, creatures of the industry at gmail.com. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews about the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, We all of us are workers, united we must stand Until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains and break a couple of concrete pours to back our log of claims. 
So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labor is a name to make a man feel 